Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and history. Today's topic is the JFK assassination conspiracy, part two. Our speaker is Gerald Posner, who is the author of the book entitled Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK Assassination. Gerald worked for years researching this book and has investigated the major conspiracy theories related to the murder of JFK. This year is the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination, and I want to find out who killed JFK and if there was a conspiracy. We discussed Lee Harvey Oswald's psychological makeup, his time in the Marines, his decision to move to the Soviet Union, and then return with his new wife, Marina, to Dallas. We discussed his support of Fidel Castro and his later attempted assassination of General Walker, who is running for governor of Texas. We reviewed all of Oswald's movement on the day that JFK got shot from the moment he woke up and grabbed his rifle from the garage to his arrest after murdering the police officer, J.D. Tibbet. In this part two, we will discuss the events at Parkland Hospital, JFK's bizarre autopsy, Jack Ruby's murder of Oswald, the KGB file on him, and the mob's participation in the conspiracy. Buckle up. Let's jump right into it. The presidential motorcade. It heads for Parkland Hospital. My brother Ron's father-in-law, Larry Klein, is a medical resident at the hospital that day. He is told to meet a VIP in the parking lot. And moments later, JFK arrives in the Lincoln Continental and the Secret Service hands JFK to him. Larry puts JFK on a stretcher and rushes him to trauma room number one. He notices brain matter everywhere and lots of blood. He puts in an IV and pages doctors for assistance. Seconds later, the trauma room is packed with doctors and nurses. Larry Klein, in 2013, works with the group to make a documentary called Parkland Doctors about the JFK assassination. Larry does not believe in the conspiracy and wanted to put the issue to rest. The documentary was released on the 60th anniversary of JFK's death, and the film has been edited to be all about conspiracy. What do you make of the Parkland doctor's comments about what happened and their interpretation of the autopsy? I am surprised sometimes at what gets made into a documentary. And I'm surprised the Parkland doctors in this edited version made it because I thought that the issues that they raised in there were resolved decades ago. They all say, those doctors who had any connection to trauma room one, we thought there was an entrance wound in front of the president before there was the tracheotomy done. And that's very, very persuasive testimony until you ask the next question, which I did. The key question for this documentary is, well, what about the autopsy photo here when the president went back to Bethesda? This autopsy photo shows a bullet wound up on the high neck, rear shoulder area in the back. In line, if it was fired from behind where Oswald would be, the bullet would hit Kennedy, come in a straight line out his neck. Did you think that that could be the entrance wound? We don't know. Why? We never turned him over. Every treating physician, the same thing. We never turned him over. You think that's something they might remember if they turned the president over? Yes. He was dead. He had flatlined. They were trying to get some resuscitation of him. Why? Because Mrs. Kennedy was in the room the entire time. I remember Pepper Jenkins said it was the most uncomfortable moment of his life was having to work on the president with the first lady in this blood-soaked skirt standing just a few feet behind them. And they said a couple of times, Dr. Perry, do you want to go out, Mrs. Kennedy, to wait? I'm not leaving yet. I'm not leaving. And so they're working on him. They never flipped him over. They never saw this wound. And the wound they saw, by the way, on the throat was a small wound. Makes sense because the bullet is a military full metal jacketed bullet, 160 grains, it's a heavy bullet. It's used for hunting game, it's a good killing bullet. The reason full metal jacketed, you may have heard of movies of that title, but for those who don't know shooting, that was put into effect 
by the Geneva Convention in the sense of being better for warfare because bullets that weren't fully metal jacketed, fragmented when they hit you and caused horrible wounds. Bullets that were covered with a full metal jacket were meant to pass through the body. So the wound was cleaner and people on the battlefield could be treated better instead of having these mangled wounds. That's exactly what the bullet does when it hits Kennedy. It travels into him and through his neck without hitting any bone. That means the exit wound on a bullet like that will be small. Tell us about the other physical evidence that shows that the wound was from the back and the exit was from the front. We know where the entrance wound is, not just because of the picture on the autopsy, but because when the president's suit and shirt are examined, the threads on the suit and the shirt on the rear are pushed in. That's the bullet entering the body. The tie on which the bullet exits the throat, the threads are pushed out. So you have the physical evidence left over from the clothes. It paints a picture of where the bullet comes from. But the doctors at Parkland saw only one part of the wound, half of the wound. They saw the exit wound and they mistakenly thought it was the entrance. Then they obliterated it with the tracheotomy. And there goes the conspiracy theorist off and running. I attended the University of Pennsylvania, and I was a fraternity brother of Benji Wecht. Benji's dad is Cyril Wecht, who's one of the world's finest forensic pathologists. Cyril spoke at one of my book clubs years ago about the JFK assassination and has been one of the most vocal critics of the magic bullet hypothesis, which is that the second shot that went through JFK's back and exited the throat then hit Connolly in the wrist. What do you make of the magic bullet? So Cyril rejects it out of hand because for a long time, it wasn't possible to prove whether the single bullet was a fact or just a theory. Now, that may surprise some people because the Warren Commission really couldn't figure out the assassination any other way. They knew that there was time for only three shots and that the shot that hit Kennedy and Connolly couldn't be two separate shots because there had been a shot that had missed. And so therefore, Arlen Specter comes up with this theory that one bullet inflicted both the sets of wounds on both of those men at the same time. Cyril said, that's absolutely garbage. It can't be proven. Years later, by the late 80s and early 90s, ballistics experts are really able to figure it out in terms of how the bullets slowed up and exactly where the men were when they were hit. At that point, Cyril couldn't give it up. I had a debate with him on CNN's Crossfire because I believe that the key bit of evidence that came out, which we never knew before, was found in 1992 by a firm that looked at it called Failure Analysis. They saw something that nobody had seen before on the Zapruder film, which was that at frame 224, 225, and 18th of a second, something odd happens. Connelly's lapel comes up. The Bullets come in, and as it comes out of Conley, it hits the suit jacket, and there's a second in which you can actually see the lapel fly up. It's a fraction of a second. It's the bullet hitting the clothing. Kennedy is dead, and the Secret Service is in the process of removing his corpse from the hospital. They pass by Dallas Medical Examiner Rose, who says, hey, wait a minute. You're not taking that body. That's mine under Texas law. I'm responsible for doing this autopsy. The Secret Service says, get out of my way. And then through brute force, they take the body to Air Force One back to Washington. The conspiracy theorists make a big deal out of this decision about where to hold the autopsy. Yeah, I don't think it would have been any different if it had been done in Dallas by Rose. But people always like to think, well, there were mistakes made in Bethesda, so it would have been better if it had been done in Dallas. It couldn't be any worse. Well, it could have been just as bad or worse. JFK's body's in a coffin on Air Force One. Mrs. Kennedy decides not to change her clothing that is drenched in JFK's blood. She wants to show the world to see what they did. It's really an amazing moment, do you think? The first lady's asked, would you like to change? Blood splattered clothes from that afternoon. You're going to be seen by the nation when you get off the plane. And no, she wants them to see it. The images of Jackie that day are everywhere, on TV, newspapers, magazines. 
the artist Andy Warhol uses that image of her as central to his assassination series. How did that image of Jackie penetrate the American public's psyche? I think the image of Jackie Kennedy, that image that Warhol used, that is the image of the grieving widow that we think of often associated with the assassination. But those of us who study the case sometimes have a different picture or view of her. And the image that I can see in front of me is her face on Air Force One when she's standing there and Lyndon Johnson is being sworn in as president. I mean, she is composed and somber and sad in the images Warhol takes. But on that image in the plane, she looks bewildered almost. What's playing out in front of her is surreal. It can't be real. Not only has she just seen her husband killed in front of her, but this man, the Kennedys don't even like Johnson, is being sworn in as the president and she has to somehow hold it together. There's that one shot on the plane. And to me, that's really the moment. Jackie is with JFK when he is shot, and it is obvious to her that he is dead. The physicians try a couple of procedures, but it is performative because everyone in the trauma room at Parkland knows that this was a mortal wound. When they pronounce JFK dead, the doctors exit the room and leave Jackie with her husband. And she takes off her wedding ring and places it on JFK's finger. Tell us about that. She was the youngest first lady, and it is very emotional. When she says, I want the moment of privacy with my husband, and they're going to take him off these sheets, and she puts the wedding ring with him. She's alone. I don't mean alone with him, but she has everything that she's ever lived for has left her at that moment. And it's hard to imagine, we call her stoic, call her brave. There's no doubt she was in shock from what had happened. She's looking at her husband at the moment of the headshot. She's trying to find out what's going on. He's not responding, she's pressing down on his left elbow. She's looking at him as sort of like, what's happening? and inches in front of her face, his head blows. You're not prepared for that. You're not prepared for that if you're in the military. People have it happen when they lose a colleague who they're fighting with in the military can go into shock. She's in shock. She's performing and moving and functioning, but she doesn't remember long stretches of what happened afterwards. The doctors at Parkland Hospital in trauma room one said that it was incredibly awkward having Jackie in the room. I've never heard of allowing a spouse to be in the operating room before. No spouse, no relative is allowed inside a room when treating doctors are there treating the mini-ER. This was the president of the United States. None of these doctors were prepared for it. They weren't prepared to see Jack Kennedy's head blown out like it was. And so it moved them emotionally as well, as clinical as they could be. So everybody felt horrific for the Kennedys. If she wanted to be there, nobody was going to tell her to get out. Next topic is the autopsy. A decision is made to do it at a military hospital near D.C. LBJ asks Jackie where she wants it, and he suggests Bethesda because Jack was in the Navy. And Jackie says, fine. That's how the decision is made. They ask two well-regarded pathologists at Bethesda to do the autopsy. They are not forensic pathologists with experience with bullet wounds. The pathologist reached out to a specialist who offers to help, but because of time constraints, does not assist. The autopsy is done in this large room with the Secret Service, FBI, and other government officials interrupting and asking questions. President's brother, Bobby Kennedy, comes and joins. And occasionally they call to the autopsy room to find out how is it going, when's it going to be over. Do you think that any other autopsy would be done in which the family could call and say, by the way, are you finishing up? We want to get going. The pathologists are limited to the technology available at the time. They're doing their best. They take lots of photographs and x-rays and examine the wounds. This autopsy is one of the most consequential and controversial autopsies of all time. Tell us about it. 
The photographs are indispensable, and forensic pathologists who examine the autopsy later use the x-rays and the photographs to determine what really happened. The autopsy doctors did a drawing later of the wound, and they have the wound that is in the back of Kennedy, that's the entrance wound from the shooter from behind, Oswald, lower than where the photograph shows it. As a matter of fact, they have it a couple of inches lower, which means that it couldn't have then exited straight through Kennedy's neck. And people say, look at that. Oh my God, that drawing. That proves that there was another shot. He was shot lower than that. No, it proves that's why you have autopsy photographs. So you know where it actually is. There's better evidence. As a lawyer, I say, what's the better evidence? You have a drawing, that's fantastic. So it shows you that the person didn't do the drawing correctly for whatever reason, they're to be castigated and criticized for that. But the photograph, unless it's been tampered with, is where the wound is, so that happens. Then in addition, they were reticent in the autopsy report, not that it was made public right away, to describe the head wound and what the damage was in the gruesome and graphic detail that a regular pathologist would describe it in because they were timid about the Kennedy family, that Jackie and others would read it and they would cringe about it. This was history. You had an obligation to do it right. Then one of the doctors takes his notes afterwards he made during the autopsy, which had some blood splatter on it, and decides, oh, God, I don't want that to become part of some gruesome public display at Ripley's Believe It or Not. I'll burn those. And burns his notes. Well, once conspiracy theorists find out he burned his notes and another one left a note with a low bullet hole, you're off and running. So those are some of the errors. And then the results of the autopsy were not disclosed, meaning the details of it, until the late 60s. Let us return to Oswald held at the police station. The police pick up Marina and bring her to the station. She meets with Oswald. What does she say? What she says happened is fascinating because Marina may know the adult Lee. She didn't know him before. She met him in Russia better than anyone else. Married to him. It's a rocky couple of years. They have two children together. And what does she see when she goes into the prison? She expects to see him hysterically angry, demanding to get out, that this is a travesty that he's being held. And the fact that he's very calm and collected and says to her in so many words, don't worry, this will be fine. We'll get a lawyer here. It's going to be okay. She left that room thinking, my God, he did it. He actually did it because she knows he had tried to kill Walker. She knows that he works at the book depository. She knows the president is shot in front of the book depository. So now her concern is, did he take that rifle? Could he have done it? She visits him in jail, and there's this sinking feeling in her that she is a Russian girl living in the United States, and her American husband might be the person who just killed JFK. The police question Marina about a rifle, and she says it's in the garage. She shows them the blanket, they open it up, and the rifle is missing. What happened? I think that one of the things to Marina's credit is that she doesn't lie from the get-go. She doesn't try to cover up from him, and it's not just self-preservation. The police station is in total pandemonium. There is press, there's some hangers-on. They bring in Oswald's mother and Marina. When they move Oswald around, the press see him and are screaming questions to him. Did you kill the president? Tell us about the chaos with the press. Well, the police activity that day at the station with Oswald there should sort of be used as the 101 class on what not to do in the arrest of somebody in a high-profile case. It's unbelievable. There's no security at all. Not only is the press at the police station going crazy, but there are these random hangers-on, like Jack Ruby, who will later murder Oswald. The press and others who have no place in being in the police station at all are there because they know the police, like Jack Ruby, who's a friend of the police because they all hang out at his strip club. So Jack's around, oh, that's great. And what's he doing? He's handing out his business card. Ruby's a guy who wants to be where the action is, the action's at the police headquarters. Stop in and you know see some of the girls and have a drink on me. It's amazing that their first concern isn't 
protect this guy who we think is the assassin because maybe it's a plot. If you are the police, you don't know if it's a lone assassin. You don't know if there are other conspirators around. Why wouldn't you take better protection of the person that you've arrested and charged with such a terrible crime? And with Oswald, there was no protection taken. Even the interrogations of Oswald, what do we know what he said? By the way, did you listen to it? Do you hear Lee's voice? Does he sound stressed or angry? We don't know because they didn't record them. They just took notes. Nobody turned on a tape recorder. Why? Because the police chief said, well, that was our policy. We didn't tape people at that time. We just took notes. It's the assassination of the president of the United States. Change your rules. How come nobody from the FBI came in and said, are you guys taping this? We want to make sure we have everything he says down on the record. It is not incompetence. It is a failure of imagination. That's right. I suspect that the audio recording with Oswald might have undermined the conspiracy theorists when they heard what a nutty was. That's right. The police initially focus on Oswald's murder of police officer J.D. Tibbet. There were several witnesses to the killing. They bring in the witnesses to identify Oswald in a lineup. The press is screaming questions at Oswald on the way to the lineup, and he's as cool as a cucumber. I haven't killed anyone. I have not been charged. I just heard that the president was shot. I'm as confused as anyone about the whole thing. He says that I'm just a patsy. It's clever. It certainly allows the conspiracy theorists to go crazy versus I killed him with my Italian rifle. Then there is no conspiracy. Incredibly, he is the instigator. Yes, and he's lying in the interrogations. He denies owning a gun at first. He sort of denies everything. He denies killing the police officer. The police get a search warrant for Oswald's room in a Dallas SRO. And when they get there, it's packed with communist literature, free Cuba pamphlets, visa documents to Cuba and the Soviet Union. The police officers who gather the evidence in his apartment are in shock. They've never seen so much communist-related materials in their lives. When the news hits the wire that JFK was assassinated, the immediate response is that this must have been done by some right-wing nut. Nobody was thinking that the killer was a self-declared communist who had moved to the Soviet Union and is a big fan of Castro. That would make no sense. Does this encourage the conspiracy theories? 100% that the conspiracy theories early on were spurred by the fact that Oswald was a leftist and a communist because the instinctive knee-jerk response of hardcore leftists and communists was... That's impossible. The very fact that he's clearly such a communist means that he must have been set up by the right wing to pretend to be a communist so we would get the blame for it. And the first people to write books attacking the Warren Commission's conclusion, this guy Buchanan was a committed communist who was living in Europe at the time. Mark Lane, a committed socialist, does the Rush to Judgment. Harold Weisberg, who does the Whitewash series. They're all hardcore leftists whose response is, it can't really be. All that communist paraphernalia and the books found, that must have been planted there. They want to make it look like that because they want to be able to blame us and go to war with Cuba or whatever else. Johnson is sworn in as president, and there is a quick press conference. Johnson says something like, it's a tragedy. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to need both your help and God's help. Is it an appropriate and powerful opening statement to his presidency? I'm grimacing because I agree it's a powerful moment, and the statement is right if you look at the words. The problem is it's LBJ. The difference between him and Kennedy, we just had our head put into ice-cold water. You've had the assassination take place, and here is this guy with JFK. Look back at his press conferences. He was so adept he had a sense of humor. He was good. He had a way, a presence, not just in his speeches, but in a personal way. 
Johnson's the opposite. Johnson's the great master deal maker, the ultimate politician. He understands it. He can do deals. Probably JFK would have failed to get the Civil Rights Act passed. Johnson knew how to do it. But that lumbering tone, that dour look, we left the Eisenhower years, which were gray and dour. We went into Technicolor with Jack Kennedy and Jacqueline, and now we went backwards into the gray Johnson. I think that for a lot of people, that added to the sense of, oh my God, what has happened? The next major public event is Jack Ruby's murder of Oswald as he leaves the police station. Just when you think the weekend couldn't get any crazier. It goes from tragedy to farce, and this only feeds the conspiracy. A public trial with the evidence and Oswald's pitiful responses would have undermined the conspiracy types. Would have helped. It must have been unbelievable. Oswald is getting moved from the police station to a jail, and the press is there, and there are photographers taking pictures, and the TV camera is rolling, and Ruby walks right up to Oswald and puts the gun directly in his abdomen and fires. Ruby is tackled to the ground, and he says, Don't hit me. It's me. Jack Ruby, you know me. I've never seen a murder like this on live television. Oh, right. So you mean you've never heard of an instance in which a person is accused of killing a popular president and then dragged out for a transfer in front of the press and live television, so we don't have to worry about the Zapruder film, live TV this time, and... What would have happened if the person who killed Oswald had been Tippett's wife or Tippett's brother, the police officer had been killed? It was revenge. We'd understand that in a different way, right? But now you have somebody killing him who's running a strip club, a guy who's hurly-burly, carries a gun, looks like a mobster, who turns out, oh, my goodness, he was one of the people at the police station on Friday night when Oswald was arrested, and on Saturday. So you're off and running. Larry Klein, who was my brother Ron's father-in-law, was the medical resident at Parkland that first took care of JFK. Larry told me that the medical residents used to go to Ruby's strip club after work. Ruby was always there, and he would have a revolver on his side. He was more than just a character. He, too, was a total nut job. There was testimony from Ruby's colleagues, friends, family, and roommate that Ruby was distraught after JFK's assassination. All of the justification that Ruby gave later, I didn't want Jackie to come back for the trial and all those things, but things that he comes up with later to explain away what is really an impetuous, spur-of-the-moment act. People think that Ruby planned to kill Oswald. And in fact, Jack's life was often spur of the moment. That's what got him into trouble. He'd get into fights with people. He didn't employ a bouncer at his club. He was his own bouncer. And Ruby thought there was an ad placed in the Dallas Morning News that day when Kennedy arrived that was anti-Kennedy, signed with a Jewish surname. Ruby thought it was a setup to make Jews look bad in Dallas. Turns out it was a real person, (laughs) one of the few conservative Republican Jewish residents in all of Texas. But for Ruby, the assassination had a bad smell to it. It was something Jews were looking bad. It wasn't why he went ahead and killed Oswald. He gets worked up over the weekend from Friday night. He's there at the police station because that's Jack. He's going to be where the action is. He's handing out his business card and everything else. His sister, Eva talks to him about what a terrible thing this is, what a disgrace this is, how terrible what happened to the president in Dallas. There's a stain on Dallas as a result of this, the place you call home where you make your business and everything else. We know what his state of mind was and what he was doing because he had a roommate, George Senator. So it's not just based upon what Ruby tells us. A telephone call came in. They have only one landline, no cell phones or anything else. Woke Jack up. On that morning late, after 9 o'clock, it was one of his strippers who said, Jack, I need some money. I need $25 if you could send it to me by Western Union. There's one Western Union office that Sunday that's open in all of Dallas, and it was downtown. 
couple blocks away from the police station. And what does George Senator say Jack did? He was slow that day. He took his time. He got ready. He looked at the newspaper. There was Jackie and the kids inside. He was upset about that. He talked about it. He got ready at a leisurely pace, and he left about 10.35 with their two dogs, drove downtown past the memorial, the makeshift memorial. People were putting flowers out near Dini Plaza, and he was upset about that. And he drives down to the Western Union office, parks, gets out of his car and goes in to send the money gram to a stripper, and there's somebody in front of him. Now, if he's been told to go down and kill Oswald, who was supposed to be transferred an hour ago, you think he might be worried that he's late, but guess what the Western Union agent says? Oh, he just was staying in line, waiting for his next turn. Then his turn comes up, he goes in, he signs the paperwork, sends the money gram, it's time-stamped by the atomic clock on the wall of the Western Union office at 11.24 a.m. He walks out the door and looks down the street and there's a crowd still on this side. And he says, oh, what's going on? Goes down, that's Jack. And as he walks down toward the police station where they've announced Oswald's going to be transferred, they move a police officer up to the street to clear the area for the car to be able to get out on the other side. And Jack walks down that ramp. Literally, Oswald is taken out and Ruby decides on the spur of the moment. I know it's hard to imagine. People want to think this is a long-term plot that no good son of a bitch, I'm going to kill him. And he breaks through the crowd and one bullet, that's all he gets off. He tries to shoot others, but the cops are immediately on him. That one bullet is a fatal shot. Oswald was supposed to have been moved to the other jail an hour ago, but he was delayed. Why is Oswald an hour late? Why does he run into Ruby at the right timing? Because a postal inspector, Harry Holmes, shows up, because Klein sold the gun through the mail order, there's a postal inspector looking at the mail order crime on this. Oh, so it's a crime through the mail order. A postal inspector shows up and says, I want to talk to Oswald. And the police say, okay. And that goes on for nearly 45 minutes. And then Oswald says, I want a change of sweaters. I want to change my clothes. And they give him a change of clothes. So by the time he goes downstairs, he's running an hour late on the transfer. And that's when Ruby arrives. Now, I've said that before to conspiracy theorists. And I've had some say to me, aha, you fall for that. They were going to hold Oswald until Ruby arrived. It didn't matter if it was an hour or two hours. If Ruby was an hour later, two hours later, they would have just come up with more excuses. Some other postal inspector, another change of clothes. Oh, we've got to take you over here for fingerprint you again or whatever else. So you can't answer it in terms of a conspiracy. In a recent survey of public opinion, 70% of the American public believes that there is a conspiracy and that the simplest narrative is false. Why is that? Because they haven't studied the case, and the case on its surface has a lot of strange things that you, you just talked about. The biggest one being Ruby's murder of Oswald. It looks like a silencing. There's got to be something to that. And then, you mentioned a second ago, when somebody shoots you with a rifle from a distance, right? It looks like a professional hit as opposed to somebody running up like Ruby does and shooting with a pistol. Then Oswald himself defected to the Soviet Union in the heart of the Cold War. He's giving out leaflets for Castro in the middle of the summer. And later we find out there's pictures of him in the backyard wearing all black, holding the rifle that's later tied to the assassination and his pistol and a copy of the militant. You've got to be kidding. Nobody does that. But he did. He shot at an army general? No, it can't be real. No wonder people think something's wrong. The lack of a trial is critical. Trial would have this put it all up. That is. And instead, what do we get? We get an official commission. We get a commission that signs off on it, produces 26 volumes and a long book, and it doesn't feel right. The photograph of Oswald, taken by Marina, of him holding the rifle next to his house, is incredible. Here is the man with his gun. No getting around that. 
Now, this is the great part. She testifies to the fact she took the photographs. That should be the end of the discussion. You would think that for any rational person, you would say, oh, we thought the photograph was fake. Instead, it launches decades of photo analysts who examine the shadows and the length of the shadow. And we think this should be like this. There are people that made a career out of saying these are fake photographs. So then you say, well, what about Marina saying she took the picture? Well, she was made to say that because she was afraid she'd be deported. Okay, then why does she still say it 30 or 40 years later? This is fantastic. I actually had a person say this to me when I was working on the book. She has said it for so many years that she now believes it to be true. With all the questions related to the JFK assassination and now with the Oswald murder, President Johnson instinctively knew that he had to create a bipartisan commission to investigate the assassination. LBJ wanted the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, to head the commission because of his public standing. But Warren had a full-time job. During the Nuremberg trial, Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson was the chief prosecutor, and that took him away from his post for an extended period of time. Warren declined to do it, but he was persuaded by LBJ, who told him that it was necessary for him to do it to prevent a nuclear war with the Russians that would kill 40 million Americans. There were some interesting choices for who got selected to be on the commission. Alan Dulles, who was the former CIA director, who planned the Bay of Pigs invasion. The future president, Gerald Ford, and Democratic Senator Richard Russell from Georgia. Tell us about the Warren commissioners. There would be no best nine, put it that way. No matter who was chosen, they wanted representatives, they wanted senators, they wanted somebody, Dulles, former head of the CIA, a bit odd, but Bobby Kennedy wanted him there. That commission would never have had nine individuals that the country would be satisfied with when it came back with a conclusion that said, for any of you who have been wondering what happened last year in the assassination, we'll tell you, the Dallas police arrested the right person. It was Lee Harvey Oswald acting on his own. That's it. End of case. Close the book. A lot of people didn't think that sounded very convincing. And so they had a tough task ahead of them. They had a great investigative staff. They depended on the FBI to do the work for them. That's problematic because the FBI could be considered a suspect in some odd conspiracy view. Hoover was worried about the fact that well, we had an investigation going in Oswald. Should we have known more? And so we later find out that one of the FBI agents in Dallas destroyed a note. So I think that it was baked in that it was going to be a difficult Commission, and there was Senator Russell, didn't believe really in the single bullet. He went along with it in the end, but he sort of said, I don't really think a bullet can do all the things that Spectre thinks it can do. And Johnson thought it was a conspiracy, very possibly with the Cubans, but was hoping the commission would come back and say it wasn't because he didn't want to go to war with anyone. Tell us about the conspiracy theories related to Jack Ruby silencing Oswald on behalf of the mob. I've criticized the Warren Commission for not investigating Jack Ruby's possible ties to the mafia more aggressively. The FBI sort of came back and said, well, he didn't have mafia ties, and the commission accepted that. They didn't push for more on the record. Now, what the commission didn't know, and the FBI didn't tell them, is that the FBI had an illegal wiretap Mm -hmm. on Sam Giancana's headquarters from a couple of years before the assassination to a couple of years after, put in by a guy called Bill Romer, who was running the FBI in Chicago. They found out where Giancana, who was the godfather of the Chicago mob, where their clubhouse was. The mob didn't even think the FBI knew where they met at this clubhouse. They knew they met in other places in restaurants and all, but they thought this spot was secret. So the FBI had this brilliant idea, we'll listen to what they are doing. We know it's not going to be used in court because it's an illegal wiretap, no court approval, but we're going to find out everything that's happening on the street. They get the reactions of the mafia to the assassination of the president. They all are reacting like every other American. They're shocked by it. They talk about it. But the big thing is Sunday when Jack Ruby kills Oswald because Ruby's from Chicago. He must be doing it for the Chicago mob. And the conversations are great. They're saying, hey, who is it? Some guy. Ruby. You know him? No. Who is he? He uh, evidently was from Chicago. You're kidding. Who knows him? So-and-so must know. 
They don't know Jack Ruby from a load of hay. It's so fantastic to see. And they aren't putting on the show for the purpose of the mics because they don't know they're being recorded. So the best evidence the Warren Commission did not have available to it about the lack of a Ruby mafia tie was the secret microphones recording everything happening with the Chicago mob. The FBI had been following Oswald prior to the assassination. They had been aware of Oswald in Dallas and that he had gone to the Russian and Cuban embassies in Mexico City. They knew he had been arrested in New Orleans related to the handing out of those free Cuba paraphernalia and pamphlets. The FBI went to interview Oswald, but he wasn't around during those visits. So they spoke with his wife, Marina. During his interviews with the Dallas police after the assassination, Oswald mentioned that the FBI had been harassing his wife and had been so incensed that he wrote a letter to the FBI complaining about their actions. The Dallas FBI instinctively knew that this letter would make J. Edgar Hoover crazy because it would confirm that Oswald was on their radar and that the FBI did not properly intervene to protect JFK. In a cover-your-ass decision, the local Dallas FBI agent Hastie destroyed Oswald's letter to him, fueling the conspiracists. What happens in this case, exactly what you expect to happen if you understand how bureaucracies work. They're not worried about something until they hear who shot the president and the FBI agent who's been assigned to interview Oswald and just went out recently to see his wife, Marina and talked to her and said he was coming back, Jim Hostie. Oswald was so mad at that visit to Marina that he went down to the FBI headquarters and left a note for Hostie, a note that said, leave my wife alone or I'm going to complain. Well, we have to depend on Hostie for what the note said. Why? Because when he learned that Oswald had been arrested for killing the president, this is the guy that he's supposed to be investigating. And he says to the rest of the people inside the Dallas office, oh, my God, that's the guy who we have an open file on. What do we do? Edgar Hoover, he's going to have our heads if he thinks that we were behind the eight ball on that. How about that note that he left here? Why don't you get rid of it? Hostie flushes it down the toilet, he says, rips it up in little pieces and gets rid of it. Not the best idea ever for an FBI agent. He ends up in Kansas City after he's lucky he didn't lose his job entirely. It's interesting that Hoover did not fire the FBI agent who dropped the ball on Oswald. You know, the fantastic thing in the U.S. government is nobody loses their job almost for anything. Even after 9-11, when they missed the attacks coming, everybody keeps their job. You keep your current level of pay and you just get transferred somewhere else. So in this case, Hoover, very, very smart, Jager Hoover, he'd never fire Hostie. He'd never take action against him because that would indicate something was wrong. Instead, they just had to make it look as though, yeah, this was bad judgment he used in getting rid of the note, but not so terrible that we can't continue to tell you what Oswald did in this case. The problem was that feeds the conspiracies because conspirators later learned, oh, my God, Oswald left a note for the FBI. What was that note about? Sure, the agent says it was just stop bothering my wife, but we'll never know. Maybe he was leaving a note that said, by the way, a secret code. Don't forget to call me on this number. But it's not surprising at all if you know how these bureaucracies work, that they would cover their reputation at the first opportunity, their own bureaucratic behinds. The amount of work you did to prepare for making your book entitled Case Closed is just unbelievable. Tell us about your research process. The first thing was I read a lot of conspiracy books. (laughs) Then I indexed the Warren Commission on cards, which are still up at Boston at the Howard Gottlieb Archive. Spent a lot of time in Dallas. I wanted to see the footage that had been left out taken by the local TV stations. I essentially was re-investigating the case. I would talk to Bill Alexander, who was going to be the district attorney to prosecute Ruby. I talked to the police officers. We went to Jim Lavelle. He was the police officer who was handcuffed to Oswald when Ruby shot him. He's the one who looks like a Texan from Central Casting with the white hat. And he took the cuffs, which he still had, which had been on Oswald, and he cuffs Trisha and me. He handcuffed the two of us together. 
I had the luxury of being able to do the case at a time when I was talking to people who had been involved in the investigation that nobody had spoken to in years because everybody was looking for the grassy knoll shooter. They were all talking to new witnesses who had come forward, who had an account about seeing a flash of light on the other side. I wanted to talk to the people who were there that day. And then when I talked to them, if they told me an account that was different than what they told the police or FBI, I showed them their original statements. I was really boring. And so, well, why is it different than this? And if they didn't have a good reason as to why, then I discounted their current. I talked to every one of the Parkland doctors and they had to tell me why they didn't see the wound on the back. So there was information to be had. That information started to paint a picture for me. In six of the best-selling conspiracy books, they don't talk about Oswald. He becomes this little stick figure. If he becomes a stick figure, then your mother says, how is it possible that this 24-year-old could kill him? Right, you have no idea about him. He just seems an inept nerd who couldn't pull off the assassination. Only until you get to know him do you understand how he ends up in a window that day. One of your great successes in the JFK project was interviewing Nasenko, who was the most senior KGB defector of his time that occurred soon after the JFK assassination. The CIA thought he was a double agent and tortured him terribly for years before releasing him. What did you learn from him? Yuri Nosenko is the most famous defector from the KGB in the 60s to America. He arrived after the Kennedy assassination and he had handled Oswald's file when he had been there working in the KGB in Moscow. To the head of counterintelligence in the CIA, a very famous person, James Jesus Angleton, the fact that a KGB agent showed up in America defecting who had handled the Oswald file, he must be a fake defector. Nobody believes that. So Angleton thought that there was already a mole. So they lock Nosenko up. They keep him in a house. They slap him around. They give him hard interrogation. He loses his teeth over time. Goes on for years. It turns out that after six years of this, Angleton and the rest of the CIA concludes, oh, he's a real defector. They put him in witness protection, the equivalent of it, and he disappears. Nobody over time, including the House Select Committee, gets to know him because Nosenko's in hiding somewhere. So that's it. So I sent a letter in under the belief that nothing ventured, nothing lost. You sent a letter to Nosenko through a CIA contact, and he agreed to be interviewed by you. We were stunned. It was the best news of the day. It was like hitting the lottery. It was fantastic. I go down to the CIA headquarters, first time I'd ever been there, and only time I've ever been there was that day. I asked him pretty much off the start why he agreed to see me. And he said, because you're the first person who asked since the fall of the Soviet Union, I'm no longer as afraid about being killed for having defected. And I thought, boy, the luck of being at the right place at the right time. The Oswald that he described was the Oswald that I had come to understand through all of the papers and through Marina's testimony, everything else. You know, Senko says when he defected, we thought he was unstable. When he tried to kill himself, we had a psychiatrist look at him who told us that he was not stable, that he was not a personality that we could trust at all. Second time a psychiatrist has seen him, he's been seen already when he was 13. Now we have a second psychiatric look at the person who will eventually be accused. Nosenko is the one who is in Moscow when the KGB agents in the Mexico City office of the Russian consulate cable Moscow and say, we've got a guy here who's speaking rudimentary, broken Russian, says he was a defector to the Soviet Union and is now wants to go to Havana, namely Harvey Oswald. It lands on Nosenko's desk and he says, get rid of him. He's a nut. Now... That's interesting to hear, 29 years later. That's when Nosenko was telling me that. But Norman Mailer got access to the KGB files after I had published my book. And those KGB files confirm internally what Nosenko said. You might get an account from somebody 29 years later. It's nice to know that the documentation shows the same thing. The KGB thought Oswald was unstable. They didn't trust him. They weren't 100% sure he wasn't a CIA plant. So therefore, they followed him a little bit. They kept surveillance on him. And they just concluded that he was a nobody, an unstable nobody. A loser. You know... 
I use the word loser often to describe Oswald. And I think it is fair the way that I use it. Everything that that person plans for themselves, they somehow either sabotage, they shoot themselves in the foot, and Oswald did that all the time, and they fail at what they try to do, not because others have conspired against them, but because they just can't pull it off. And that's what he was. He was a loser on everything he tried to do. Except for one thing, killing the president of the United States. And that's why we can't believe he did it on his own. Because this guy who never succeeded anything else, sorry to bring it up again, but five years later when James Earl Ray pulls off the assassination of Martin Luther King, people say, he's a four-time loser. He was arrested time and again. He's a guy who never succeeded anything. He was a convict. Come on. He never could pull off the assassination. They only have to do it right once. I end each episode with a note of optimism. My optimism about the JFK assassination is that a Gallup poll taken earlier this year showed that 35% of the public believes it's a lone assassin. A number of people said to me, you must be very dejected and disappointed by that. And I said, not at all, because I remember that after the Oliver Stone film, it went to 6% in one poll. Nobody believed it was Oswald alone. So now a third of the country, there's no deathbed confession after 60 years. Nobody's come forward and said, I have a guilty conscience. No documents come out in the release of documents of assassination files. It's a smoking gun that says it's a conspiracy. 60 years later, people are realizing, guess what? The truth is that Oswald may have done it. A third of the country says it now. I think that over time, we'll eventually get to a poll. I hope I live long enough to see it. Where more than half the country thinks it's Oswald Long. We'll never have a consensus. They'll never get 90% again, I think, you know, all believing it's one assassin or it's not. But the truth on the case will settle in over a period of time. Thanks, Gerald. This ends our two-part series on the JFK assassination. In case you missed it, let me tell you about part one. We went into the weeds on everything Oswald. Gerald discussed Oswald's experiences when he defected to the Soviet Union. We heard about his purchase of the rifle that is tied directly to the bullets that struck Kennedy and a frame-by-frame analysis of the Zapruder film that showed that the bullets that killed Kennedy came from the front of the grassy knoll or from Oswald in the Texas Book Depository and so much more. If you enjoyed this episode, you're going to love part one. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnext6minutes.com. Please subscribe to weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.